Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Legislative changes mean that both advisors and fund managers have to take more account of ESG and what they're doing. Lee Coates of ESG Accord has been involved in green investing for three decades and is well-placed to talk about what it means for advisors, fund managers, and investors. We had such a good conversation that we've made a two-parter. Watch out for the second half next week. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have any suggested future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So I'd like to welcome Lee Coates, who is director at ESG Accord. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thank you very much, Brian. So as usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the world of ESG? Yeah, well, for 31 years, I ran my IFA business called Ethical Investors, and that specialised in ethical investment. And obviously, starting back in 1989, there was no ESG or um, sort of sustainable finance, but it but it's morphed over the, the three decades. And then I retired from that business during lockdown, and uh, that lasted a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then with my colleague, um, Ellie, we set up ESG Accord. And so I've I've sort of um, is it poacher turned gamekeeper? I'm not sure. I've come I've gone from being an IFA to running a compliance business. And um, as far as schizophrenic, I probably wouldn't talk to myself. Yeah. So that that's really the background. And ESG is a sort of a term that's banded around with with multiple different meanings. But but in terms of using it for the purposes of a discussion, it's it's a really good catch-all. But uh, so that, that, that's that's basically it. it's moved from ethical into sustainable into ESG into compliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I first came across it when it was SRI, sort of um, one of the permutations. Yes. Yep. So you mentioned about ESG Accord. What does ESG Accord actually do? Uh, we provide a technical compliance support for advisors and um, small to mid fund managers around developing an ESG and sustainability proposition. So obviously for advisors, it's how do you incorporate it into your financial advice process? And for fund managers, how do you talk about what you do in a way that is compliant? And of course, nowadays, when you when I certainly say the word compliance, it's, it's often um, unspoken is a slash consumer duty, because the world of consumer duty is is going to impact on every single aspect of providing advice or being a provider. And we, we look at specific aspects of consumer duty in relation to ESG and sustainability and clients making investment decisions that align with their values. Okay, so we'll dig into those a little bit. But obviously, this podcast focused on the world of venture capital. How did you become linked to that world? Well, we published a database on uh, model portfolio services. And as a result of that, we started getting requests from advisors. Oh, could you look at the tax-efficient vehicle market? Because advisors were looking at NPS and obviously talking to clients about ISAs and, and SIPs and whatever. And then if clients are interested in ESG and sustainability, you could go off and find some funds. But the the feedback we got from advisors was that there was less sort of coordinated information from providers and some were doing it but not talking about it unless you asked and some were were doing it and um, a lot more upfront 
and a lot were not doing it. So really, that we we looked at that market, and then we work with Martin Fox, who is on um, works with ESA, and we decided, well, why don't we do a tax efficient vehicle version of our NPS, so that we have a free to access database looking at EIS, um, VCT, SEIS, IHT plans, and went out to the market and just said to all the providers, if you're doing anything at all around ESG and sustainability, talk to us, put the information upon our database so advisors have got a single source to go and compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've had a look at that myself, and there is definitely a lot of information in there, so it's definitely a helpful resource. So... As you sort of said, we're focusing on ESG, and that's a phrase that has kind of evolved over the years. So how do you see what ESG means to you or where it is just now? I think that the the short answer, personally, mm-hmm. is ESG is on its way out. It's just the rest of the world hasn't caught up yet. <laughs> that's very <laughs> arrogant, doesn't it? No. Um, no, what I mean by that is that, 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 that there's a nuanced sub text to that, which is that there's been a lot of products pushed as being ESG. They are themselves ESG, marketed as ESG. We're going to save the world by being ESG. That's what I think will end very, very soon. Should have ended a long time ago and maybe shouldn't have even started. So so I think ESG will just become so normal that people won't talk about it. And, and what I mean by that is that it'll just become what it should have always been, which is a risk tool used in the investment management process. When you're picking companies, you look at their ES and G because they that those are externalities that impact on the bottom line of businesses. And if they don't, you need to know that they don't. Mm-hmm. So that's about looking at who you're investing in. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're you know running a large OIC or in EIS or VCT, there are externalities that you need to look at Mm -hmm. in in different sectors, have different weightings. But so as a risk tool, virtually everybody will be doing, should be doing ESG. We often hear advisors say, oh, my clients don't want ESG, which is an interesting one. When you break that down, what they're saying is, I don't want any environmental and any social or any governance applied to any investment you make for me, (laughs) Mr. IFA or Mrs. IFA. And of course, IFAs are going, yeah, my clients don't want ESG, so I recommend, and there should be a pregnant pause there, or mm-hmm. there isn't anything. You show me a fund with no governance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if they exist, who, who on earth would invest in them anyway? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing. If they did, you know, yeah. it's a free market. Launch yes. as many funds with no, no governance in as possible, but nobody in their right mind would be recommending them. Well, I, th- I think yeah. we've had them in the past. I've been reading a book recently about sort of it's called lying for money, about scandals in the past. And yeah, there have been these things in the past, but we have the rules now which stop that. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, to stop them being marketed. But I, I, I could sort of playing devil's advocate. I would argue that some of those scams in the past have had very good governance, internal governance about how they can mm-hmm. last as long as possible before they get caught. So, you know, if you take the broad spectrum of, you know, what exactly does governance mean? It means looking after the business. So if you're doing a scam with good governance, it'll last longer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like tongue in cheek there. Yeah. But, but, but not, not entirely, entirely in the sense that, you know, Bernie Madoff no doubt had excellent internal governance because he ran that for such a long time. Yeah, and exactly. People are not organised. Yeah can't do that so 
Um, yeah. So, so governance is not, and this is perhaps one of my criticisms of the USG, in that the, the G side is ambiguous in a sense, in that it, it you know just because something's run well, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it. You know, it can be run well in achieving objectives that aren't necessarily aligned with what you as the investor wants. Yeah, well, that's where the soft E and the S come in, <clears throat> because it adds a more subjective nature to the what what type of governance mm-hmm. you're looking at. I mean, it's, it's quite an extreme example, but it's one that works quite well. You could look at a company that used child labour, for example, mm-hmm. and you could say from an ES, broad ESG, sort of touchy-feely, nice perspective, you would say, why would a fund buy a stock that's involved in child labor because it's a sort of, you know, it's a big problem for the S. But you could spin that around and go, a company that uses child labor and does everything it can to ensure that any bad information about the number of kids or kids dying, whatever, doesn't come out, has really good governance. Mm. And so from a purely objective fund management point of view, if you're not running a fund that has any value judgments than a company that uses children in its production process Mm -hmm. and is profitable and keeps all that information under wraps, has good governance and meets, ticks the ESG box. Mm -hmm. It just looked at from a slightly different perspective, almost in the same perspective as some of the anti-ESG funds that have been launched in the last year or so in America. I haven't seen those. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I noticed that the 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 flow of money into them is is drying up now and probably reversing. But yeah, there was a, a backlash in the U.S. to to I think the I think the, what the Republicans say is you know that the woke the woke move in mm-hmm. the investment industry. So some fund managers set up anti ESG funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I suppose thinking about oil in particular, which I, I think some of the arguments you just talked about child labour, some people would apply to the oil industry in in in, in a similar way. That's definitely yep. something that's problematical in an ESG context, I think. Yeah, yeah, because probably the oil companies are very good at the G and most of them are, you know, pretty good at the S. The big target for on their backs is the the e side of things mm-hmm. but they even then you've got you know subtle subtle differences between the I, I don't want anything to do with fossil fuel investment strategy or the i want the fund managers to understand the market enough to be able to pick those companies that will still be here in in 20 years mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I saw someone else making the point that actually if you move the, the needle on an oil company you're going to make a bigger difference in the environment than if you move the needle on, say, an insurance company. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And to some extent, maybe part of the change is is in the language. Mm-hmm. So if oil companies stop being called oil companies, and I'm not a spokesperson for the oil industry <laughs> here, but you know, if oil companies stopped being called oil companies and be called energy companies, into you know, from a um, psychological perspective, you're already seeing what they could be, not what they are. I think that marketing has already been tried a little bit, but I'm not sure it's been terribly successful. I think BP tried some time ago, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Beyond yeah. Petroleum. That's the one I, I don't had know how many mind. decades ago that was. but um, um, It feels like yeah. a while ago. We're, we're both old <laughs> enough to remember it. So. so I think one of the things that frames things perhaps more, more interestingly is there's been a couple of recent rule changes that are relevant to both advisors and fund managers and ultimately will affect investors. So you mentioned earlier consumer duty. 
Do you want to tell us what changes consumer duty brings to sort of ESG? Yeah, I'm glad you said brings to ESG rather than talk to me about consumer duty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a whole series of hourly podcasts on that one for the next 12 months. And they would be a yeah. lot less interesting than this one, I suspect. Oh, yeah, possibly, yeah. So from from an ESG and sustainability perspective, I think that's the language, really. It's, it's, if ESG is a risk, then, then it's about sustainability and how that's brought into the conversation. I mean, it, it's very very easy to look at the the look at consumer duty and identify where that fits in um, we're often asked you know can you show us and that might be an IFA or it might be a fund manager can you show us where it specifically says in consumer duty that advisors must ask about ESG and sustainability and that's a really easy answer um, to give which is it doesn't show it it doesn't mention it but it does say from if you're giving investment advice is you must demonstrate that you are allowing clients to make an informed choice and you must involve the client in selecting their own investment preferences and objectives so on the informed choice that meets the requirement um, for advisors to educate clients so you so if you come back to ESG, we lots of advisors have the ESG question as they call it in their fact find, which I would argue should never have been there. But but under consumer duty, it's just the wrong the wrong place to put it and the wrong question to ask. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is, if you're going through what's the name of your dog, what's the name of your kids, how much money have you got, and do you want ESG? I'm I'm shortening a one and a half hour conversation <laughs> around fact finding there, but you know the flow I'm going through there. Do you want ESG? Well, clients don't need much material before the meeting to answer what's the name of your children or what's the name of the dog and how much money have you got. But simply just to throw in, it's it's, it's like a hand grenade. Um, you know, you're throwing this hand grenade, and what what do you want it to? Well, I don't want it to go off. I don't know what it is, but can we move it away? So. A client can't make an informed choice if they don't understand what it is you're asking. So mm-hmm. simply just saying, do you want ESG? What's that then? Oh, I haven't got time to go through that. We need another meeting about that. Do you want it or not? Most normal people won't say yes to something they don't understand. They'll always say no. Mm-hmm. So from a, a fact find perspective, you said, oh, I've asked the ESG question. The client said no. But under consumer duty, there could be a bit of desk-based monitoring from the FCA, in fact, there probably will be, around demonstrate how your clients made an informed choice. And if you if your answer is, well, I asked them about ESG, that wasn't what we asked. We asked, how do you demonstrate the client made an informed choice? What did the client understand about the question they were being asked in order to give that answer? Which is why we say it should be moved out of the fact find into a separate process that looks at everything. So ESG sustainable, normal investment, normal investment with ESG as a risk tool, all the options often called the spectrum of capital. So that's a big change. And then investment preference and objectives is really about how do you want to do it? So you, you we've informed you about the different ways of doing it. So do you want to do it in a sustainable way, in an impact way, in an ethical way, in an ESG way, or just in the way that's always been done or the way you've always done it? If you advisors talking to an existing client the way we've always done it for 20 years i have to talk to you about this now you're aware of the other options there's the informed bit mm-hmm. and the client says nope just carry on as normal i don't want any of those sustainable options or that's interesting talk to me a bit more mm-hmm. so it's very engaging for the client they can be engaged enough to say don't give me that or engaged enough to say that's interesting i'd like to build it in 
And that's what consumer duty brings. Mm. And that needs a process. Consumer duty is about process and data. How do you prove you've delivered good outcomes? Mm -hmm. And the outcome itself is not proof of its own. It's very existential <laughs> there. But <laughs> the, the suitability letter, which demonstrates or you know provides information on the advice, is not itself proof that the advice is good. Mm -hmm. You need a process to demonstrate that you've got to the good outcome via clients making informed choices about their investment preferences and objectives. So you make it sound like there could be a substantial change in processes for advisors or some advisors to do this because it, what you, sound, you make it sound like, well, actually, instead of one, one little question, there's a whole additional process. Is that, is that fair? Uh, yeah, it's an additional process. I mean, we've tried to make it as, as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. We've actually sort of reduced it down to, to advisors using two, two new documents. But, but from a broad process perspective, we say the advice process or fact-finding process, mm -hmm. if you're onboarding a new client, it's, it's in three parts now. One, fact-find. Okay, we all know what that is. Then separate to that, and I think this is already the case for the majority of firms, you look at attitude to risk and capacity for loss. It's a separate thing. Uh -huh. Just having a how much risk do you want to take thrown into a in the middle of a fact find doesn't work in the same way as ESG thrown into a middle uh -huh. of a fact find doesn't work. So fact find, risk, preferences. Uh -huh. So w what have you got? What is the risk you'd like to take? And then how would you like the money invested? Without getting into, you know, asset allocation discussions and then asking clients whether they think the the if Trump wins, it'll impact on the asset allocation in the US. And maybe if they wrote a nice letter to the fund manager, they would change it, change the asset allocation to the US. You know, not to that degree of detail, but understanding there are mm -hmm. different paths yeah. to that investment. And that's instantly the hook for the client. So clients will move from the from understanding what they've got to why they've got it. And that's really powerful. That's a lot of a lot of advisors have missed how powerful that is. Look at the uh, you know they look at the negatives of I've got to change my process. I've got to do something new. But if if they're taking clients on on a journey with them for the long term, and clients are moving from that, well, I've just been told for twenty years what I've got and why I should have it. But now I understand what it is I want. And why I've got it, and that helps with um, you know, uh, market fluctuations. When the client's view is, I wanted to invest sustainably. I've got a long-term view, and then Russia goes into Ukraine. It's yeah, okay, that's really hurt, but that's a short-term thing, mm -hmm. isn't it? I'm taking the long-term view. So, all that comes together under consumer mm -hmm. duty. Yeah, and do you think there is demand for clients for this as well? Because it seems to me that there's probably a, a, a good portion of clients that will be happy because they're, they're understanding things better. And there's probably still a portion of clients, and I have no idea how big this is, who are just like, I just want to be told what to do. Yep. Yeah, and then you're in a, you're sort of a negative catch-22 there, because there is a mindset in some firms that if, if clients were interested, they'd ask. And therefore, by default, in not asking, they're not interested. It's One is proof of the other. Mm. Well, on that basis, I spent 30 years as an IFA. I never, ever in 30 years had a client insist that they purge themselves and, and tell me what their attitude to risk and capacity loss would be and that you know they couldn't sleep 
ahead of the meeting <laughs> because they were so excited about telling me about their attitude to risk and capacity for loss. On that basis, as it never happened, why would I bother asking about their risks? It's clearly not important to them. So, you know, I, th- I, draw, I look at ESG and sustainability seriously along the same lines. It's not the client's job to raise the issue. So I think there's a huge amount of latent demand out there. Only the people that have that latent demand don't know they've got it. Mm-hmm. which is the advisor's job to check. And even if 99% of a, of an advisor's clients don't want ESG, the point is under consumer duty, you have to ask in order to identify that they've made an informed choice not to have it, not make the choice on their behalf. It's a, Again, come back to risk, it's the same as the client saying, well, um, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I can't ask. Okay, you, you're my advisor, you fill in the risk for me. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But... It does happen in ESG, which is that sort of, I'm not going to ask unless the client asks. They haven't asked, so they're not interested. So on their behalf, I've made an executive decision that they don't want it, and I'll take them down the path that that, that suits that assumption. Not very good for claims management. No, and it seems to me that you, you could almost say that actually it's even less likely than for risk, because ask client what they know and what they feel about risk they're probably very hard to substantiate what they say and think almost everybody will have some sort of opinion on some aspect certainly of esg e and s and and possibly of g as well so they already will be probably talking about it oh yeah that you know bp are a bunch of whatevers or oh these there are these poor oil companies getting hammered whichever perspective they have yeah um you know there'll be a lot of people yeah, the interesting thing about that is that if you look at the the, the risk thing, uh, clients may not understand risk and certainly wouldn't understand capacity for loss. As, as a general statement there, the average person doesn't have discussions down the pub about capacity for loss. Mm-hmm. But, the, but, but they're told on the news every day that the market is up, the market's down, billions have been wiped off shares because Russia went in, whatever. So there's mm-hmm. that element of if I go into the stock market, there's a risk. There's a I could lose some money. So, mm-hmm. without being able to use any of the vocabulary, there's a sort of inbuilt fear of being in the market. So they're already in that risk space. However, mm-hmm. when it comes to ESG, they could have they could go down the pub every night, have ESG discussions, and not a single person that that within that conversation necessarily makes the leap to all the things we're talking about are related to investment, are related to my ISA, mm-hmm. are yeah. related to my SIP. And that's the jump. They can have conversations about the subject, but that subject is is, is a different area to investment and never the two shall meet. Mm-hmm. And, and in most instances, they don't. But the point is the advisor doesn't know that the clients, their clients are down the pub talking ESG issues every night mm-hmm. until perhaps a couple of years later when, when the client says, oh, my friends had... Um, a green ISA for years. Uh, why haven't I got one? Well, you never asked. Well, was it my job to ask? Well, no, it wasn't mm-hmm. my job to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was your job. You're the advisor. Yeah, the advisor yeah. You should have let me know that it existed because mm-hmm. I would have done that. Oh, and by pure coincidence, the ISA that you set up for me a couple of years ago is now worth half of what it was when I put it in. So I want you to reinstate me back to where I was before I put the money in, so then I can go and put my 20,000 in mm-hmm. a green ISA. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's an interesting one. How do you defend that one? Well, you didn't ask. Yeah, but try try taking that one to FOS. The client didn't ask whether I should have done this, so I didn't. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that seems a, a fairly tenuous argument to make. Yeah. The regulator is going to be too sympathetic to that one. Yeah. You mentioned about a sort of spectrum of things. So if a client does want, I'm going to use the ESG in the broadest sense, yeah. what should an advisor actually do? Because you mentioned a whole pile of options there. Yeah. Um, practical perspective, it's before before there is a meeting with a client, send them some information, We uh, say, about the spectrum of capital. It's a broad term just to say uh-huh. everything from conventional investment through conventional with ESG and the, the labels that are coming in and ethical, not hierarchical thing. It's just there are different pathways. Uh-huh. Those are different ways money could be invested. And then the technical bit is how they're invested once you've chosen your pathway. So we say to, to advisors, just send the client a document to read before the meeting. That's part of informed choice, meeting consumer duty. Have a read of this. It's very light reading. It just describes different ways in which money could be invested. Then when we meet, we'll uh-huh. have a conversation about the one that's right for you. Uh-huh. It's very client-friendly language. Client may raise some questions. Can you explain this a bit more? Can you explain that a bit more? And they could say, can can you explain a bit more about this conventional investment that I've had for 20 years? Why doesn't it include sustainability or ESG? Does it have the... I I read about the governance thing. Surely you wouldn't put my money in the companies that weren't well run. Mm -hmm. And has it been in companies that have... Was that the reason why I lost some money a few years ago? Because it had companies that didn't have this governance? This governance thing's really interesting. Now I've read about it. (laughs) You know, you could have a conversation, mm-hmm. unlikely, but, you know, a client could get engaged at that level. So it's just send them that. And then the only other document we, we say advisors need is a way of recording the conversation about the mm-hmm. document that they sent the client before the meeting and the client's reaction to it, which is, have you read it? Yes. Are you happy? Have you got any questions? No. Would you like to, have you chosen the route you want to take? Yeah, I understand what I want to do. Good. Then you're making an informed choice. Yeah. Okay, wouldn't put it like that. It sounds leading, but you know what I mean? It's just capturing that information and you record it and then you go off with, I don't want any of that sustainability is is perfect for consumer duty because the client made an informed choice about what they don't want. It's not what you do as much as what you do want is what knowing what you don't want, mm-hmm. identifying, I don't want my money to go there. And that could be, I don't want money to be invested like it has been for 20 years. I want to shift to sustainability. What now? Well, maybe we could do a half and half. You know, that, that's, an, that's a conversation. That's an engaged conversation. The clients are involved. They, they're owning mm-hmm. yeah. That, yeah. That, that bit. They're saying, I want to own that bit, and I want you to make it happen. That's why I've come to you as an advisor, because none of that conversation ever happens with a client that doesn't have an advisor. So if, you, if, if, if an advisor wants to say, what's the, what, what's the benefit in paying me money rather than going direct to ABC direct proposition, it's, I'll have a conversation with you about how you want your money invested. They'll ask you what you've got. They'll ask you about the name of the dog and the ne- and how many kids you've got, that, you know, because they have to. But all they want to do is find out how much you've got in order for you to give it to them, this direct proposition, and then step back and go, if it goes wrong, we never gave you advice. The benefit of get- getting advice is we'll help you understand why and how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned the spectrum of capital a couple of times. Do you want mm. to tell us a little bit more about that? Because that sounds... Like the core, a little bit of what you're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, it's a term that's been around for a long, t- a long time. I mean, normally, normally, or historically, it's a, it sort of it starts from light green and goes right through to sort of ethical and responsible, and and, and we use it in the context of saying different pathways. So, a, a conventional. UK equity fund or a global fund—that's what we would call a conventional. It just 
exists to maximize returns. It's a growth fund. It's there to maximize returns, Mm -hmm. not to make any value judgments, hopefully with the G built in for governance. Um, And that's it. But more funds, and I think very soon the majority of funds will be conventionally run, maximizing returns, etc., but using ESG as a risk tool. So that's another step. And then we've got sustainable labels coming in shortly. And then you've got ethical at the end. So that that's a spectrum of ways, very, very top level, non-technical, but it just allows clients to say, you know, okay, I understand there are, there are different buckets or different pathways I can take. And now I understand that. I, I can make an informed choice. And that, that's something advisors need to stress to clients, that, that they're they're going to be far more involved in the advice process. It's not about the advisor telling them what to do and, and why it's being done. It's about in, engaging. So going to ask you more questions, and that can be about extending the risk. It doesn't have to be about ESG, but I'm going to make sure that you under, really understand what it is because I, I can't really proceed until I get your effective buy into this are you happy now that we proceed and oh you've always done it for me you do it just isn't acceptable that's quite difficult actually forget esg that's a difficult conversation to have because that doesn't meet consumer duty oh you've been my advisor for 20 years just carry on well that's not an informed choice that's a that's that's a sort of um passing the buck to someone else but it's an interesting that that client might two or three years down the line use consumer duty as a lever to say well i never made an informed choice did Uh i I want out of that investment mm. that lost me money. Mm. Yes, that I, I think that's always a challenging decision for advisors. Um, ha, having seen, been on the fund manager side of a couple of these situations in the past, where funds haven't pro, haven't quite performed as well as you might have hoped, and probably mm. some investors out there were effectively missold. You know, that, that their expectations, you, you you know, in the spectrum of what people are being told, some yep. are being re- re- really realistic and some are not being re- really realistic. You know, and that, that depends on the quality of the advisor to a certain extent as well. Yeah, and the process. Yeah. And I keep saying process, but, mm-hmm. but one thing that advisors need to, to take away from consumer duty is just make sure you've got a process for everything. So doing it, doing it really well, delivering perfectly good outcomes for the client is now not enough. You need to you need to be able to point to every stage in the advice process what your process is in that process. Because each each step has a you know, you need your due we yes, we do due diligence and we do good due diligence, but what's your process? Have you got it written down somewhere? Yeah, you need to document what it. your due diligence is. And if a client says yes, they want sustainability, what's your due diligence process for finding a, a suitable, sustainable investment option for them? It's all process driven and data. And it makes that it makes the regulation very much easier because all the FCA has to say is um, show us how you identify that clients are making an informed choice. And it can't be because they all agree with me is not an informed choice. They're just agreeing with something. They may or may not understand what it is they're agreeing with. So the FCA would be teasing out from that question. Well, what process do you have in place? What do you give clients in this point in the process or that point? So do you ask them out of, pick a number between one and 10, that'll be your risk. Or do you have an attitude to risk process that explains to clients why they're why they're being asked and what the differences are. And most use, you know, computer-driven psychometric testing or, or whatever it's called to sort of tease out 
what the client's actual risk is. You how you know would you would you still attend a party if you'd lost ten percent? Would you still go to the same party if your money had lost twenty percent that day? You know those sorts of things. No, I'd be really upset and I wouldn't go to the party. Okay, fine. Then your capacity for loss is 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 party level one, party level two. Um, you know, so you're having those conversations. So ESG and sustainability needs to be brought in exactly the same sort of yeah. way. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I think my gut feeling, and it's maybe broader consumer duty, is that there's a lot of advisors already doing most or all of what consumer duty asks them to do. Yeah. And they just maybe haven't quite documented it or, or put got the process in the way that the consumer duty might expect them to. Yeah, yeah. So I say it's not, not having a process doesn't automatically deliver poor client outcomes. Mm-hmm. All the outcomes could be good. Mm-hmm. But consumer duty requires you to evidence how you achieved good. Being good in itself is not enough anymore. <laughs> you have to provide evidence that the good you've achieved is right. And that, that requires a process. And so we go back to informed choice. So when you're talking about investment, how would you like your money invested mm-hmm. um, isn't a technical thing. It's It's a high-level thing that says, based on now what you understand about the different options available to you, which one suits you. And some clients will go uh, a bit of both. So they might say, well, you know, I'll keep half in conventional and then half in sustainable, and then we'll monitor each year mm-hmm. how they perform. Yeah, I could easily see someone saying, actually, passive, I'll just leave an index, and active, more ESG. That might be an, an easy split to make, I think. Yeah, definitely, because it's going to, it's going to be harder and harder for passives to to actually make any claims in the in the sustainability space unless they're you know linked to a very specific sustainable index. Mm-hmm. Just making any any claims around ES, I mean, even governance. You know, how do you apply? Slightly rhetorical question, but you know how how can you apply at a at a deep dive level governance when you're running a passive fund when well, you're buying yeah. what's in the index? Well, you 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 can't in a sense. No, no. I mean, there are governance processes. In yeah. is it a good index? Do we have a process to monitor? Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. are are we are we updating the index once a year based on you know a fixed cutoff date just before we go away for Christmas? You know, that's not very good governance in the managing of an index fund. But it's not about a governance in the companies in which you invest. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why. You know, there's a strong claim in the active management community, and on, and clearly EIS, VCT, those are actively managed products mm-hmm. about really understanding the company that you're making the investment in. Not investing in it because it's the fifth largest company in an index, but investing in it because you believe in the business. And to believe in a business, you need to understand that business and ESG, um, you know, how, how the envir- environmental issues, social issues mm-hmm. and governance issues impact on that business and its profitability and your ability to technical term here offload that that investee company up the chain when you want to make an exit mm-hmm. because where where you're exiting to will have its own set of ESG and sustainability pr- parameters because as a stock gets bigger it goes into bigger investments it moves out of the tax efficient vehicles into them more into the mainstream and those mainstream funds have a whole load of ESG sustainable responsible questions to ask because they have to report mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this has been a point I've been making for some time in, in conversations with people where I think, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I can see soon that if you're trying to sell a venture capital or get an exit from a venture capital company by selling it to a third party, that third party, as you say, will have its only ESG requirement. And if that company does not satisfy them in any way, they may not buy it. Or exactly, if, yeah. Or, or if the process is, if it doesn't have good processes, you will get a lower price on exit because they're going to have to spend money bring it into their ESG requirements. Yeah, if, if you're if you're looking to buy two companies that are held in a in a VCT fund, and your conversation with the management can either be a, what's ESG? Mm-hmm. Why are you asking us? No one else has asked us. Or b, yet we've already got all the information you want. You want access to our systems to to look at what we're doing, and any help you can give us on improving that would be great. You know, all other things being equal, which is the more interesting company to buy? It's it's the second option, isn't it? Because the other one involves you as a manager having to go and sort of lift up the lid and go, well, we'll have to, we'll have to report on everything that's under the bonnet, but we have no idea what's in there. And worse, they don't know what's in there. The company we're looking to buy don't even know what's in their own under their own bonnet. <laughs> so we'll have to go and have a look, and that might impact on our reporting. If mm. we, ca- we can't get any carbon emission numbers out of the... That the business, we have to report on the carbon emissions of our portfolio. So buying company A, is that going to significantly increase our carbon numbers? Mm-hmm. We don't know, because they don't know. Mm-hmm. But company B does. Yeah, it seems to me it's a challenge, though, because if, if you look at, say, a quoted fund manager, listed companies, or a fund manager of quoted companies, they have specific ESG requirements. Is you know increasing amounts of disclosure. They have a quite often a scale to be able to put processes in to measure these things. When you're in a VCT or an EIS, you're investing in a company that is much smaller, has less resources to spare. You know, particularly I think if you're a seed investment, they they're all focused on that product market fit. ESG is yep. something they're, they're probably aware of and they're thinking, well, we'll deal with it later, but let's get this company going first and and, and we'll handle that somewhere down the line. So yep. these things are going to be inevitably less perfect. Yep. But it's, it's um, I would absolutely agree with that. It's, it's not a question of, you know, on the first day you meet a company, you expect them to have ESG sorted even before you've invested, but having a process as a as an investment manager about holding hand, holding the management's hand and moving them through. So okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it at the initial stages, but nothing more than talk about it. So they're aware of that that we're going to be up in the game. And then the first annual review, we'll we'll understand the company better. They'll they'll know us better. Mm-hmm. We can introduce a little bit more. And all that's focused on the exit strategy. It's about making it's like every other aspect. It's about making that company better and more profitable at exit. And ESG is part of that. It doesn't have to be sorted on day one. But the conversation needs to start. Action needs to start once the company is actually starting to do what it's what you want it to do. But everybody's focused down on, on that one objective. There's an the exit value could be negatively impacted if we don't tackle these issues now. And and not it's not Sunday night homework. It's not let's just before we go public, let's chuck in some numbers. 
because the first thing any in future investor will say is, what's your process? Well, we've got the numbers. Now, I didn't ask you about numbers. I asked you about process. How did you get to the numbers? Sounds a bit like consumer duty, that, doesn't it? <laughs> don't care about the numbers. Just give me the process. Then yeah. I'll understand more about the numbers. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting, I think, is I, I, I see a wide range of fund managers. I know there's a whole spectrum of how far along they are in terms of sort of ESG. I think the ones who have processes in place... And in fact, say processes that give pathways for companies, they often find they go into companies and say, right, where are you? We have this process about prioritizing whatever. And the companies are like, great, here's a structure. We wanted to do it. We haven't known where to start. Here's a structure. And, and we can move on that. And it, so the companies themselves often in this environment, you can't be unaware. But when they sort of get a pathway, they're actually like, okay, here's something that's manageable and we can deliver on they get very keen on that yeah yeah and sometimes you you get two parties desperately wanting the same objective but if they don't have a conversation Mm -hmm. they don't know the other party there was it's probably 30 years ago now but there was um i think it was business in the environment did a survey of fund managers about back then it was green issues and then they surveyed FTSE 100 companies about green issues and, and and I think the one of the main takeaways from the the report was fund managers would like to know more about green aspects of the companies they invest in, but the management never talk about it, so they they don't ask because they assume nothing's being done. Mm-hmm. And then investee companies, FTSE 100 companies, were saying we've got so much stuff here to talk about. We're doing so many good things, but no one ever asked us, and we don't bring it up because we assume they don't want to know. And so it's so, okay, let's go back 30 years, but it does show the psychology of, you know, when somebody actually does mention it for the first time, don't be surprised if you get a lot of excited responses. Mm-hmm. Wow, so you really want to know what good stuff we're doing? Yeah, we do want to know. Fantastic. Changes the dynamic. Take that situation, and like I said a bit earlier, plug that into the advisor-client relationship, and it's like, well, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, but thank you for t- introducing that concept to me. Can we talk about it some more? instantly engage clients oh and by the way i've got about five mates who would love to have that conversation with you as well mm-hmm. yeah. and that isn't going to happen if the advisor gets very excited about describing time value of money and pound cost averaging <laughs> the client doesn't run to the pub to their mates no. and say everybody gather around i want to talk to you about pound cost averaging but they will go and say we've we've we regularly have our thursday evening pint and planet mm-hmm. that's a good one isn't it pint and planet <laughs> discussion <laughs> And no one's ever talked about money before. I just spent some time with a new advisor, and they did. And it's brilliant. Well, they didn't give me a pint, but they did talk about the planet. (laughs) They then spread that word. Oh, what's the name of your advisor? Mine's never mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they probably can't help you then, but mine can. I hope you enjoyed the first half of the discussion with Lee. Next week, we'll talk about the new sustainable disclosure rules for fund managers and how that will affect advisors and investors. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars in your favourite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with the second half next week.